Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence, and lots of guts. Today's guest is Nicole Alvino. Nicole is the founder and chief strategy officer of Social Chorus, which develops the employee communication and engagement platform intended to transform how workers and organizations connect. The company has raised over $47 million to deploy with customers as large as Hilton Hotels, Boeing, and AT&T, all of which Nicole has had a huge part in closing, including actually AT&T, which has been their longest standing customer and has grown from a, a, an annual bill of about $30,000 a year to many, many millions. As a sales-minded strategic founder, Nicole has great stories to share about acquiring first customers, managing a sales team, and surviving crises. And, you know, in the light of COVID-19 going on, we've actually spent quite some time on the crisis piece as Nicole's career started at Enron, the Fortune 7 company that blew up in a scandal in early 2001. Uh, Not Nicole's fault, she would like you all to know. Then she started her current company, Social Chorus, just months before the 2008 crash. She lives and breathes the phrase, never waste a good crisis, and has a lot of advice of how people, entrepreneurs, and sellers should manage themselves throughout this difficult time. So, without further ado, Nicole Alvino. Nicole Alvino, welcome to the Gong. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. Oh my God, this is this is a special uh, coronavirus edition of Sales at Startups. Um, we, I wanted, I figured, in light of what's happening in the world today, uh, it would be most relevant to start with another challenging time that you've been through uh, in the past. Um, that's where you started your career at Enron. Uh, if I, if my research is correct, you joined, uh, and then spent a couple of years there before all of a sudden one of the greatest, most famous and influential companies in American corporate history, uh, had a, a bit of a, got itself into a bit of a pickle. Uh, what happened? What happened there? What's that story? Yes. A bit of a pickle. So yes, I, am definitely an expert in surviving global bankruptcies and global pandemics. So the good, the good news is we will get out of this, um, with our head held high. So I started my career at Enron in structured finance. So for those of you, which is very different than than SaaS, um, but I have several stories for maybe another time. Um, My bosses did go to jail. Two of the three people who wrote my letters of recommendation for business school did go to jail. So that was a bit of a uh, tricky time in thinking about what would be next for me. Um, I, at age 23, I was given power of attorney to go to the Cayman Islands to buy a $400 million power plant, a Turkish one. So that that is one, one story. Um, and for me, what was, I think the, the most, two things that I took away with, one, because I was young when all this happened. I was in my early 20s. Um, For me, I realized that nothing as far as a career or a company was truly stable. So the notion that, oh, you work for a big company and you'll be quote unquote safe or protected, 
Enron was the Fortune 7 company the year it went bankrupt. So that was a lesson to me very early in my life, um, which obviously did lead me to my entrepreneurial path. Um, so I think the second big piece that stood with me is just the importance of culture and ethics in running a business. So I decided after that experience that I would only start companies where I could control the culture and ethics um, of a company, which is what put me on my entrepreneurial path. What did you describe to me what that time was like? I'm, I'm so immensely curious. Like, what was it the day you found out things were things weren't going so hot? The day I found out. Well, it was also an interesting time in the world. This was also 2001, and 9-11 had just happened. I was living in London at the time, so I was an expat and had an interesting perspective of being not in the States when this was happened and had the experience of a global community really coming together. So I, I thought saw something really beautiful in how others reacted to me when they heard my accent. So it was during that time, um, I was also applying to business school and I remember changing one application to defend what I was doing at Enron because the first Wall Street Journal, Journal article came out calling what Enron was doing. I don't know if it was sham that was used first, but it was a bit of a black box, house of cards, something to that effect. And I took it very personally and wanted to defend what I was doing because, again, as, as my 24-year-old self, I was very um, passionate about what we were doing and always thought I was, I was working for something good and innovating for a greater good. So we'll, we'll move on to the kind of start of these stuff in a minute, but you know, for lots of people, this, you know, March, 2020 is their Enron. It, it is, it is yeah. like the moment in which their career and their plans and their thoughts fell apart. If you were talking to a, a 24 year old Nicole today, who is, is going through something like this, what's your advice on how to take advantage on how to I don't even know if take advantage is the right way to put it, but, but make some opportunity out of this turmoil. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective. I think it's one, you realize what is really important to you and what will drive you and motivate you on the other side. And I think that's the thing. There's always another side. So one of all of my friends we all, who all lost our jobs together at Enron, everyone has moved on professionally, personally, um, and th there is another side. The, the people who I personally felt the, the strongest for were people who were later in their career, who were close to retirement and had listened to leaders and basically lost their, their retirement. So, you know, that's something that um, was, I believe, much harder for others. Um, but again, this is, this is the moment to, like I said, understand what, what really matters, learn about yourself and take the, the time and social distancing um, to, to figure out what matters. So, so you took that opportunity and took a little break, went to business school uh, at, at Stanford and then came out of that with a startup. What, what, was, uh, what was Derma Lounge? What were you doing? 
Derma Lounge bringing anti-aging treatments out of the doctor's office and into an upscale urban spa. So you were like a, a, a re, you were the soul cycle of lotions. You, you were some well, beautiful yeah. retail lo- establishment. Lo- lotion, <laughs> lotions, potions, needles, lasers, all of it. And why, why do a startup? What was it like for you going from a giant corporate environment into business school at Stanford, where I suppose startups were uh, uh, in the conversation du jour uh, and into doing your own startup? Yeah, for, for me, it was about, again, control, being able to really own the culture and the ethics and also create impact. And for me, just after being in such a behemoth of a company, especially in energy and doing finance, I mean, I was dealing in hundreds of billions of dollars of transactions. And the impact that I could make as one individual just seemed to be so small. And so I thought that helping helping people and making impact, you know, one shot of Botox at a time would would um, really change the world. No, seriously, it was, for me, it was about doing something where I could see the impact that I was making. And I saw an opportunity in an underserved market in skin health and around building a brand around skin health. And as also at that point in my career, I was done with finance and done with energy and wanted to do something that I also enjoyed. Yeah, I've debated the like make an impact thing with some friends. I've been doing startups my whole career. Some friends have been at big companies their whole career. And I say, you know, nowhere can you make an impact like you can at a startup. And they who are at places like Google or Microsoft or Procter & Gamble say, well, nowhere can you make an impact like you can when, you know, 100 million customers use your product the day you release it. Uh, So there's a nice balance there, but it does seem like from the startup perspective, while your impact might be on a smaller scale at first, it is proportionally larger and and at least feels feels more significant in the beginning. That's right. So uh, t- Derma Lounge, where did your first customers come from? What what were you what was your strategy back then to get customers to do this new anti-aging uh retail establishment thing and this was around 2005 I think you started. That's right. So it was early days. Some people now call them med spas. Um, so it was early days of this. So and it's not really like, where did people go to get this at, at that point? Doctor's offices. Yeah. You had to get like a prescription and say, Hey, I want a prescription, stodgy doctor's office. You would like, you would go to get a mole burned off. So it was a, a different type of experience. Was there a lot of regulation around it? What, what was the, what were some of your big hurdles in the, in the beginning to get this going in a new way? Yeah, there there were some regulations with this type of treatment. It's so non-invasive. So there was actually a pretty open regulatory window um, because you you could have nurse practitioners. You needed a doctor's oversight to check the charts and things, but nurse practitioners could actually perform uh, the operations, which helps with the cost model. Um, and as far as as getting clients, just like with any business, I think it, it does it start it's word of mouth. Um, I think it's a lot of time founders just saying, okay, who are my friends? Who can I, who can I recruit into this? And then growing um, from that word of mouth, I think especially in a, a small business. And then again, we've seen that in right now, what we're doing with social forest is some of the biggest brands in the world that other people and talking about your business and more importantly, the results is always going to be your best marketing. 
Yeah, the, the, the start with your friends thing is interesting because you always need to and there's always their balance there of like, you just need your first paying customers, whoever they mm-hmm. are. And then like, how many favors can you ask of your friends? So when you were doing Dermalange, we'll definitely talk about this in the context of social cars in a moment. When you're doing Dermalange, were you just going around to all your like business school friends and saying, hey, like anybody want Botox? I've got this new thing and I can give it to you cheap. Please come in. <laughs> In a slightly more um, tasteful way, Adriel, <laughs> but yes, very, very similar. And and the the market, what the good news was in San Francisco, there are so many, the de- five degrees of separation basically covers the city. So I was lucky to have a, a good pot of business school friends, people from undergrad, people from, from growing up who also had friends and friends of friends. And so, yes, we did things like, um, Botox parties where we would host things in, in evenings, got some of the uh, San Francisco social influencers at the time who were friends of friends. Um, when we opened our second location in Burlingame, we hosted a, a Burlingame Mothers Club um, b- uh, night or two. So it really was about um, word of mouth friends and engaging the, the local community. You've talked about culture a bunch, uh, stemming from your time at Enron. What mm-hmm. did you do at Derma Lounge? And we'll also use this as a transition into social cores, uh, which you've been doing for the last 12 or so years. What impact did your Enron experience make on how you as a CEO or as a founder wanted to, to run a culture at one of your own organizations? Yeah, I think I wanted people who were passionate about what they were doing really felt a sense of ownership and pride and wanted to be a part of something that, again, they they felt was creating change for good um, and something different than what was the norm. Uh, So you were just, you were looking for people who cared a lot. You were looking for people who were just looking to do something new. Were there any other stipulations that you wanted to put around your first hires, maybe even especially your first sales hires in, in either of those two companies? Yeah, it was people who personally I could 100% trust. Um, and the, the two people who ended up running my stores and, and running sales in those stores were people who treated Dermal Lounge as their own as well and really felt, um, you know, felt that they, they were an owner and felt that pride. I think that's incredibly important. And I think that that's, I've seen in the best people that we've hired in Social Chorus have that same type of value of ownership yeah and, and what about at social cars T- tell me what is social cars now to, to provide some context because it's a it's a much different company today than than it was back in 2008 when you started and, and then we'll take it back that's right so social chorus is a workforce communications platform and what that means we're a software as a service for the enterprise really focusing on communicating with the entire think about big companies or even small our companies is about 50,000 employees but our largest customer um, I think Washington but the idea is that leaders um, really need a way to reach align and mobilize their workforce and everyone who is an employee who is part of a workforce deserves to feel informed, supported, and connected to what the company is doing, to what they're doing, um, to really understand 
what their role is, get what they need to know. Obviously, in a global pandemic, there are certain things we, we need to know more than others. Um, but just in, in day-to-day business, from the employee standpoint, really feeling connected to the culture, connector, connected to the bigger and larger meaning of the organization. And then from a leader to really um, align the workforce and mobilize them to move the company forward. And one of my favorite things about Social Course is that it also seems to have been founded in a moment of crisis. I think uh, you launched around the summer of 2008 and around September of 2008, the bottom fell out of the world. Uh, what was that experience? You just, you have a knack for it. I you think so. I think so. Now, now that we're looking back, yeah, no better time. It's, it's true. There's no better time to, to start a company. It'll, it will weather the storm. And I, I do think that the strongest company is, I think it was Andy Grove, who is actually one of my favorite professors in business school. I think it's crisis. Oh, you, took a, you took a class with Andy Grove? Oh, it was amazing. Oh, oh, it only was, the paranoid survive? <laughs> exactly. It was a small class and it was, a, it was, there were only like 15 or 18 of us. It was a, we had to write an essay to get in. Um, but yes. That was a very um, memorable experience for sure. For some context, Andy Grove is, is uh, the founder of, or one of the founders of Intel, one of the most famous, I think, 21st century CEOs and the author of uh, a, a book on management that only an engineer called, can write called High Output Management. There's a biography by him uh, that, or of him that was absolutely incredible and, and was on my uh, Christmas gift list in 2018, I think. So yeah. very cool that you got to take a class with Andy Grove. What's something you learned from that class or from any interaction with, with Andy Grove? Yeah, I mean, I think back to this passion, I think he had this combination of brilliance and passion and persistence, which maybe comes together in Paranoid and only the Paranoid survive. But um, th- those were the, the things that I took from him. And I think one of the things that he's famous for saying is in, in a crisis situation, it you know, destroy, it'll kill bad companies, good companies will just survive it, and great companies will be better from it. And so, you know, I think that that lens is especially important now as we think about how we're, we're managing through this crisis, and the, the great companies will be better on the other side. And I think we can say that the, the people Obviously, different types of people are going through different types of things, but I think we can look at it on the individual level as well. Yeah, it's something, uh, it's something another famous professor, more modern, Scott Galloway, uh, marketing professor at NYU, likes to talk about a lot, which is this will cull the herd, so to speak, which is a pretty dark metaphor, but means the same thing, which is you know, the, the not good companies are just not going to make it through. Those that aren't, don't have good models, good business models, all the soft bank companies are out. There are certain companies that are good companies and they'll do fine, they'll survive, you know, all your Carnival Cruises and United Airlines, they'll, they'll probably make it, but certain companies can take advantage of it. Take me back to 2008, what was the insight that launched Social Chorus? And what, what were you guys doing over the course of the first year in order to, you know, you launched, you had an idea, uh, the world was fine, everything seemed to be going all right, you launched it, the world changed. Uh, what were you guys doing strategically in that maybe first year of operation uh, in that difficult time to make sure you were one of the great companies that would be better from uh, the changing world? 
Yeah, I think it, it's always going to come back to providing value to customers. And if it's truly something that is of value, no matter what's happening in the macro economy or geopolitically, if that value is there and it's significant, then you'll, you'll make it through. Yeah. What were you, what was your value in 2008? What was the, the concept of social course? Where'd you start? So yes, then it was, and it was interesting. This is a, a segue from Derma Lounge. So at Derma Lounge, we were one of Yelp's first customers, one of Facebook's first brand pages. Obviously as a company, everything we did was word of mouth, word of mouth from our clients, word of mouth from our employees. And so for me personally, it was how could we take this concept of word of mouth with social technology and and merge them to be able to engage others basically other people telling a brand story in a more authentic way than a brand could tell it themselves so this was early days of um, customer advocacy or employee advocacy and really having another person talk about your product or service in a again, more authentic way than, than the company could. So when we started um, Social Chorus back in those early days, it was, um, again, telling, finding other people, whether they were um, customer, they were customers of these products, um, and then it morphed into employees of um, these products telling the stories. So AT&T, which is our oldest uh, customer at Social Chorus started with a customer advocacy and they were the first ones to say, we want employees to share our stories as well. Um, so it's been really interesting to see AT&T start with what we were doing almost a, a decade ago and move with us. Now they have their entire global workforce gets all of their communications through the social course platform. So it's been really amazing to see all of the things and how AT&T's business has transformed as well, since they've gone from a kind of an older school communications company to a, a tech and media company. Um, recently, they obviously had an activist investor. They have a new CEO. Their new CEO really understands the importance of direct and authentic communication and is using our platform to communicate to his employees twice a week, um, which is also really um, cool to see as well. So you mentioned that your first customers need to be some of your friends. Who were your first customers that social course and and what was what did you actually provide them? Like, you know, there's there's always a balance with startups, which is you know, Reed Hoffman likes to say, uh, if you if you're not embarrassed by your first product, you've launched too late, right? There's that balance of like fast, iterate quickly, like it's okay, be scrappy, and just sell what you got. Versus like you can't scare people off before you really built anything you had. So, who are your first customers, and what was it that they were buying at Social Course? So, something we like to say is sell the dream, and I do think that that is an important part of. Any, any entrepreneur, um, and especially in, in the SaaS world, I think that the, the product that we had at those early moments and the, the opportunity or the value that we were selling were definitely connected. And that was the vision 
but the, the actual product itself wasn't delivering on that value and vision quite yet. Um, but we were lucky to have visionaries who understood where we were going and could see where we were taking it from the, the product that we had at that particular moment and then the, the opportunity in the future. And so were you just, I mean, were you cold emailing people at AT&T and saying, hey, head of HR, like, we've got this thing that you don't have right now. It, it kind of works, but the dream is it'll work a lot better and, and hoping that they get on the phone with you. How are you, how are you marketing to people and what were you saying? Yeah, a little bit. So it was some, it was, I was doing outreach from, from LinkedIn. We had some early, actually one of our, now who was our um, top sales performer last year was our very first SDR. So we we gave him, we said, here's, here's this thing called Salesforce. Here's my LinkedIn. Um, here's my co-founder's LinkedIn, go crazy. And it, it really was phoning up people, whether it's someone's assistant or getting them on the phone and saying, here's, here's this value or there's a better way to communicate with your employees, connect with, with all of your constituents. And here's how we view the world. And people, people like Dow returned a call at AT&T and Boeing was one of our early customers as well. So we, we, found, we found people who cared about reaching their employees and who, who shared that passion for connecting with them. And how are you pricing the product at the time? There's a, we've had a, I've had a debate with, you know, this is probably podcast episode number 25 of the gong and, and at least half of them we've talked about pricing and debated, you know, do you price low just to get any customer? Do you price high into what you're, you know, if you're selling the dream, should you also price at the dream and say, Hey, you know, I know I'm giving you $50 worth of value right now, but my price is 75 because soon I'll be giving you a hundred dollars of value for that price. How did you guys think about how to price? If you could share anything around like, you know, 12 years ago is a long time, but what, what your prices were and, and how that's evolved. Yes. The good news is it's evolved a lot as our, our value has increased. So has our, um, we always think of, of price is value. So, um, but yes, in those days I would say, one tenth or even more of where we are today, and I think when you're when you're starting, when you're a startup, especially when you're selling to the large enterprise and you're getting them to do something new, at a certain point, it, the price point has to be something that they can just take a chance on. So we 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 started selling low, and a testament to the value and to delivering on the dream we were selling was that um, we were able to increase prices over time. And now obviously the value is very high, so we can start high, um, which is the best place to be. So in the beginning, you were just, I mean, what, what did it look like? Hey, AT&T, you're trying to communicate to a thousand people, pay us you know, five bucks a head per month and, 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 and we'll give you some platform for them to, I guess back then you weren't even communicating to their employees, give us five bucks ahead and we'll give them a way to tweet better news about you. Pretty much. Yes. That was it. I think our first, I'm trying to think our first order form with them. I think it was like $35,000 for a year. That feel really good. Oh, it felt amazing. We look back. So the person who 
one of our very first hires. He's actually been one of our best salespeople of all time and is now managing a good part of our sales team. That was his very first deal. And he was so proud. I think he still has that, that SOW up somewhere in his office. Oh, he wouldn't be the only person who's framed their first deal. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that that one I totally buy. You you've mentioned a few of your SDRs, both this this person who signed the, mm-hmm. the big deal with AT and T twelve years ago, uh, somebody who was your top performer last year. How do you guys think about what makes a fantastic seller uh, in your interview process? What do you interview for? Again, back to that passion. We it's it's we're selling a solution and we're selling. Um, we have to offer value. So it's, it's passion for offering that value. It's empathy to really understand and connect with the person on the other side of the table and now over the phone and in zoom. And I think our, our best sellers have been people who have those core traits. So I think our, our other um, top seller is someone who we hired to be one of our first customer success people. And she managed customers and then moved to the sales side and brought on Amazon, brought on some of our, our biggest customers. So that, that deep understanding of the customer needs, having empathy for that, and then passion for our solution and saying, how can our solution really deliver value? I think that, that transcends anything else, any sort of sales experience that name your company. Um, that, that's what we found. Are there certain questions you like to ask in an interview when you're interviewing a, a, somebody on your sales team? I like to ask about, you know, that the, I, I don't do the sell me a pen. I know some people like to <laughs> like to see how, how people think about, about selling, but I think it's just a, a situation where you've had to convince someone to do something new and it's really focused on understanding that person and what they need in their situation and then the why our sale is always it's about a why we're not we're not selling a widget we're not replacing a widget we it truly is offering a a different solution and requires a different way of thinking so anything that can demonstrate the person knows how to do that Um, and then a couple of different questions just to, just to see their energy and their passion. Again, it doesn't have to be, it could be for anything because that does translate. How would you answer that question? Let's say you were interviewing for this, uh, this tough job in a competitive environment at Social Chorus and, uh, you know, uh, founder sits across the table from you and mm-hmm. says, hey, Nicole, I know you want the job. Could, tell me about a time where you had to convince somebody to think differently. Uh, what, what's something you've done along those lines and how did you approach that moment? Oh, let's see. So many. By the way, by the way classic podcaster bed. strategy, just have you ask the questions on my behalf when I start running out. So great this work. Is good. Yeah, I'm taking notes for that when I start my podcast. I'm just podcasts are very in. That. Everybody's doing it. Everyone's doing it. It's true. It's true. Especially now. It's a good time. What else are you going to do? It's great. Sit around, listen to them. Although you do want to I would, you need a podcast with some sort of a playlist. So it's like, you could listen to it maybe while you're working out, 
So you get a little bit of the intellectual stimulation and the physical. So you might want to think about that as well. I like it. We'll put in uh, Kanye's graduation album in three minute clips. It'll be a bit of Nicole wisdom, a bit of uh, school spirit by Kanye. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So, sorry, the question, question. before I I got all excited, (laughs) got it. I mean, I won't say who it is this week. What day are we on? I guess it was last week. I was on the phone on the, on a zoom with a CEO of a multi-billion dollar company convincing him basically why change? Why should I do something different? And what I always like to do is you, you have to, um, the challenger sale is something that we like at Social Chorus, but for him, it's like, look, how can you do? You ha- how can you possibly run your company? You're in the midst of a business transformation, supply chain in Asia. This company has had to change their strategy, and as a CEO, how can you possibly execute on the strategic change you need to make if you can't have all of the people? who work for you in all parts of the world, completely in lockstep, understanding what they need to do. And so pause, and you have to pause because they have to, they have to, it has to become a personal problem for them. Personal, and when you're a CEO, your personal problem and professional problems are usually pretty linked <laughs> as far as the outcomes you need to drive. Um, And so asking questions, just like you're asking my questions back to me, asking questions of these people where either they don't know the answer or they have to think about an answer in a different way because nothing they're doing today can fill, can solve the, can answer the question or solve their problem. I I, I really like that. Um, The challenger sale, I think is by Neil Rackman. If I remember right, uh, it was a book recently, relatively recently published that basically said instead of just, you know, there's different kinds of sellers, some of them, uh, some of them are great relationship builders, and that was always thought to be the best kind of seller, but the real best seller taken from a bunch of data about sellers who still did a good job actually during the, the Great Recession of 2008, 9, 10, uh, were the ones who really pushed their customers to think differently and didn't agree with everything that their customer said and actually found ways to disagree with the customer and push them to think differently and offer them an entirely different perspective. So that's something, you know, some of the lessons from that book are some of the things that you guys like to talk about and, and push among your sales team at, at social course. Absolutely. Yeah. How, how do you, how do you, do you have formal training programs or how do you kind of uh, get everybody in line? How, how do you do your training of salespeople at, at social course? Yeah. So great question. We are so lucky. Our head of sales is a phenomenal sales leader and he was actually spent 15 years as a um, sales training consultant. So he worked across many different sales teams would go in, help them basically transform their team, learn how to sell better and, and move on. So he's had, we're just brought so much experience from that consulting framework. So we will have different different sessions where um, we'll present a framework and then role play, and it's a lot of a lot of challenger, a lot of overcoming objections, a lot of how do you get what we're working on now is 
using a framework called the Challenger Customer. And actually, a many new new one for your list. Add it, add it. If your birthday's coming up, maybe I'll send it to you. Um, but it's this notion of often in enterprise SaaS or in big sales, there are multiple stakeholders that you need to get aligned. And it's about finding that mobilizer within the customer that can bring people together. And then for the, the, the organization selling, so for Social Chorus, it's how do you find the one thing that unites these 5.4 stakeholders who ultimately need to make a decision of why change? So it's not about your thing versus a competitor's thing. It's why do I change at all? And so it goes back to being provocative, offering something that is a new way of thinking is a change, but it needs to be a change that everyone in that 5.4 stakeholder group can get behind as far as needing it and getting value from it. What's the 5.4 stakeholder group? On average, there are 5.4 people in an organization who need to get behind the purchase of this new technology, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. So for us, it's right. I had communications, HR, IT, sometimes CEO. So it's those type procurement, finance. So you have, you throw in all of these different people who have an opinion. And who's your who's your? I mean, you're not you don't always get all five point four people in a room together for one big pitch. My my guess is that oftentimes you get one of those people. And then you need to give that person the tools to convince the other remaining 4.4. Maybe they bring in one, one of their buddies, maybe two. And, but there's always people being convinced behind the curtain. Who is your ideal you know, of communication, CEO, HR, mm-hmm. um, IT, anyone else who needs to get involved? Who's your ideal champion? So it's really about the persona. So it's a mobilizer. It's a person who can get these constituents together. So we have had situations, a CEO helps. Usually a CEO can get, get things done. So when we have the opportunity to uh, talk directly to CEOs, that, that does work out favorably for us. But often we don't obviously start with the first call with a CEO. So there has been someone in the organization who is a mobilizer, who's able to get all these other constituents on board with the change and the potential that the change will drive. Yeah. What, what, how do you try to treat your personal involvement in sales? You know, you have a whole sales team, but you know, the story you just told is a week ago, you were on the phone with somebody, mm-hmm. uh, with a, with a prospect. Where do you balance, you know, let your team run and do their thing. And when do you think it's the right time for you as the chief strategy officer or your you know, other executive colleagues to come in and help on a sale? Yeah, I try to do it. And again, everything we're doing is providing value and really being consultative and supportive. And so when I come in, it's, look, I work with executives across our customer base. I can share what they've done and how they've been successful in their organization. So I'm brought in as an executive resource and um, really as someone that they should get something, they should learn something from me. So I don't want to, I, I don't think I'm getting on the phone to sell. Um, I want to get on the phone to share, share knowledge, any sort of wisdom and provide value. Um, you know, I've, even if they don't buy social course. Yeah. So, so you're kind of the, uh, 
the mini Deloitte of social course. Like they're expecting the product, but they're also expecting uh, a think tank from you about how to treat employees and co- uh, how to treat employees differently, how to communicate better. And so that's the product, but there's also like, help me think about what I need to be doing. And that help me think comes often from folks like you and the other executives. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Usually in and under 45 minutes at a much reduced <laughs> price tag from the <laughs> That's a bargain. Uh, Nicole, let's, uh, let's jump to one of my favorite little portions here. This has been a blast, uh, but I want to ask you a few rapid fire questions here. Oh gosh. Okay. I'm ready. Well, I'll ask him quickly. You don't need to worry. You can take your time. Answering oh, I him. see. Oh, you're doing the rapid fire <laughs> question, not rapid fire answer. Got no, it. I'll be rapid. You can take your time. Uh, <laughs> first question is, are there any sales or startup books that have been particularly helpful or impactful to you? So I am a huge Jason Lemkin and Saster fan. So for me, anyone in SaaS, in sales, that follow him, read his tweets, read all, listen to his podcasts. I think that's a that's a pretty good SaaS startup bible. Um, that is for sure my go-to. I I love it, Jason Lemkin. His Twitter, he is like him and Harry Stebbings are the two most active Twitter podcasters I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> need a break every once in a while, but mostly I'm I'm all with it. Um, what is the sale you are most proud of landing in your career? Oh, let's see. So many to choose from. I'm trying to think. And it's a challenging, they're always a challenging one. So I, I think probably the um, Boeing, the CCO of Boeing, so the Chief Communication Officer of Boeing, again, convincing why change, why do something different. And we found that we had a shared interest in really reaching the manufacturing employee who had had been heretofore or theretofore left out of the a lot of the, the corporate communication and the culture that's being built. And his point of view, he's since retired, but then it was several years ago was, look, here are the people who are building our planes, they're the heart and soul of the company, and they're the ones who are the least connected, and that's not okay. So it was finding a common ground with someone who has one of the biggest jobs at the biggest companies in the world, um, aligning on that, and yep, convincing them to move forward. Do you, uh, not a rapid fire question, just a follow up to that one. When you're working on a sale, especially one like that, do you try to put your ROI, the ROI they can expect in sort of a dollarized value? Do you say, hey, right now you're spending X amount of dollars or you're losing X amount of dollars or you're missing out on X amount of dollars of potential, but with social cores, we'll bring you an extra you know, $5 million in top line or cost savings or whatever. Or is it, is it that like hard science or is it a little more soft science of we help you do the right thing and we help you manage your communication better? Where, where do you guys land on the whole you know, dollarization to, to the penny on one end versus like, we're just, we're the right thing on the other. Yeah. So I think, look, I think it, I don't know where this falls in the, the pendulum, but our point of view is as a CEO or as a business leader, how can you possibly run a company or guide your company through any sort of transformation, which every business if you're not transforming, you're basically being left behind. How can you possibly do that if your team is not on the same page, not aligned, and not mobilized to do what you need them to? So if that, that higher order 
piece. It's binary, sort of you'll, you'll fail if you don't do this. Might not have to be with social force, but in general, if you're not reaching, aligning, and mobilizing your workforce, you will fail. Um, and there is also, you know, we don't love to go down a rabbit hole of calculating a particular ROI. Yes, we can do that, and yes, we can show that, and yes, we can correlate increase in sales and decrease in um, employee turnover and things like that. Um, but we find if we're going into that pencil and doing that little math, it's reducing what we're doing to a bit of a commodity, which it isn't. Um, so that was not a rapid fire answer. <laughs> That's I, right, guess, yeah. I guess it's a little, it's a little bit of both, right? It, it, it's back to the value. It's back to that. Here's the, the, the value and you will realize it top, top line and bottom line. And we have um, different, you know, we we're, we're so fortunate to have these incredible customers who have seen the hard and soft benefits and can talk to that. Gotcha. Uh, well, that was not a rapid fire question, so it's okay to go off the rapid fire answer for that one. Back Got to it. rapid fire questions. Uh, who is a, a sales mentor uh, and what did you learn from them? So back to our head of sales, Brian McDowell. I think he, he is just an incredible um, sales mentor. He would actually be a good person for your podcast as well. Um, I, I just think everything from his um, brilliance, he's been, gosh, a sales leader. I don't know, three decades, maybe more. So he has wealth of experience, has seen all different type of selling in different, when software was software and not SaaS, um, through to SaaS and again, in different industries. And um, really just, just focuses on how to, how to sell a solution and how to get a solution bought in difficult climates. Yeah. Uh, what is a company that you would have loved running sales for in its earliest days? So for example, uh, I would personally have loved to be a uh, Airbnb, you know, growth person when they were like six people. Wh what would you do? Got it. Got it. I don't know if Zoom comes to mind. Yeah, timely. That's timely <laughs> now but then no but then it was new because it's some it's something new yeah. right if you if you were to say you're going to start doing your meetings looking at someone on a screen and you're not going to get on planes anymore people would have thought you were crazy yeah. which i like that i like being thought of as a little bit crazy yeah uh well hey nicole this has been an absolute blast i like to end it on i like being thought of as a little bit crazy maybe Maybe we'll right. make that the title. Uh, <laughs> where can people learn more about you, about Social Chorus, um, and, and everything you guys are doing? Yes, you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn or socialchorus.com. I've been writing a lot recently just around, obviously, coronavirus, how um, important it is to be able to reach and align workforces, especially now. Um, so again, happy to be a, a resource. Please reach out. Awesome. Nicole, thank you very much. Thanks.
Well, there you have it. Nicole Alvino, ladies and gentlemen. If you like the show, please leave us a review or a rating. It means so much. Uh, you're welcome to find me. I'm at alubarski2 all over the internet, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, even Gmail, at alubarski2. Happy selling. <laughs>